We're going to continue our series this morning. The message today is entitled, Proud or Humble? We need a proper understanding of genuine pride and also what biblical pride represents, especially in the face of the recent Supreme Court's ruling and what has been splashed around the newspapers regarding our pride or our proud nation. We continue our series in The Whole Truth. Now, in his youth, you're familiar with George Patton, the World War II hero. Well, in his youth, George, General George Patton, the World War II hero, wrote of his intense desire to be great. He said he would even be willing to endure torture or even die just so that he could be great. What drives a man to seek this type of recognition for superiority? Is it pride? Or could it be the fear of being shown to be inferior? You remember in the Bible the story of Saul, king's first, rather Israel's first king. He felt inferior that he tried to hide among some baggage to avoid being appointed king. Later, he became so arrogant and he became jealous that he almost went insane. As Alfred Adler said, to be human is to feel oneself inferior. Pride is often defined as the instrument we use to block out any feelings of inferiority and give ourselves value. Let me say that again for someone's sake. Pride is the instrument we use to block out feelings of inferiority and give ourselves value. Youth have the ability to uh, look in the mirror and exclaim, well, I'm pretty great. And then the next day or even 20 minutes later, they moan, you know what, I'm pretty worthless. And you know, it turns out that we never really lose that skill. We as adults just become a little more sophisticated in expressing ourselves, but we find that we still give voice to both sides. Both words, pride and humility, have positive and negative connotations. Now, we know that pride is the root of sin, and yet we also know that we can take pride in certain accomplishments and achievements. Humility is considered a laudable virtue, worthy of saints, but the word also conjures up perhaps images of people groveling around in the dust and in the dirt. But as we've seen with our previous messages, saint or sinner, great or slave, strong or weak, we can't trust popular definitions or opinions on these issues. A biblical understanding of pride and humility give us, a less, uh, give us less disjointed and a more helpful perspective. Perhaps you know somebody who might be extremely egotistical and arrogant. You may know someone who doesn't like to work well or doesn't like to work under anyone because uh, they feel superior to others. Someone who has to be in control. Someone who is never wrong. Someone who, is never, who never receives instruction or constructive criticism. Someone who is a master of putting other people down. Someone who leaves a train of disunity and conflict. Or someone who, if he or she had been run out of town, would make you think that they were leading a parade. Pride is like that. It is simply blind and it is simply self-deceiving. So what's the origin of pride? Someone suggested that pride emerges from the legitimate necessity 
to des- uh, sorry, legitimate and necessary desire to show that our lives have value. That's, uh, that's what someone suggested about the origin of pride, emerging from a legitimate and necessary desire to show that our lives have value. And that's why we often use uh, the word positively. For example, in saying that we take pride in our accomplishments or in the work that we do. Uh, We take pride in the way we've raised our children, etc. We mean that we have shown that we can do something of value. That's what we're saying when we're mentioning we have pride in a certain accomplishment or thing. That we've shown that we can do something of value. Pride, though, becomes twisted when we think that a personal asset or a personal accomplishment gives us more value. So we can have pride in our accomplishments, pride in how we're raising our children, pride in our church and the message that we're sharing, and that shows that we can do something of value, but pride becomes twisted when we think that a personal asset or accomplishment gives us value. Pride is the result of, our, of the thinking that our concerns, our desires, our accomplishments are more important than those of other people. Like the disciples of Jesus who kept asking in Luke 22 verse 24, who is the greatest? Humanity, you and I, are not content with value, but we desire superiority. We desire to be number one. And at this level, pride is no longer a feeling of accomplishment, but an estimation of ourselves as more valuable than somebody else. Life then, then becomes dominated by the attempt to prop up that estimation. And pride had its origin, didn't it, way back there in heaven. Lucifer said, you know what, I can do a better job than God. I could actually be like God. Actually, I'm going to take the throne of God. And so he's spent... I don't know how much, if it's the better part of his life or not, but he spent these last 6,000 plus years seeking to, to, to place more value on himself than he deserves, more value on himself than others and than God Almighty himself. His life has become dominated by attempting to prop up this estimation, false estimation about himself. Uh, the evil that led Peter to fall and to shut out the Pharisees. I'm reading from Christ Object Lessons, page 154. The evil that led Peter's, to Peter's fall and, to sh- and that shut out the Pharisee from communion with God is proving the ruin of thousands today. There is nothing so offensive to God or so dangerous to the human soul as pride and self-sufficiency. Of all sins, it is the most helpless and the most incurable. That's pride, and that's pride that we need to stay away from, amen? Certainly. Now, pride was a major problem in the church at Corinth. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Abigail read that for us here this morning. She did so wonderfully, didn't she? Pride was a major problem in the church at Corinth. In fact, pride had led divisions in the church. The Corinthian Christians were boasting about their knowledge and about their level of spirituality. They're also attaching themselves to specific ministers as heroes of their particular group. People were saying, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Cephas, or Peter, or I'm of Apollos, and some were even saying, I'm of Christ. And these arguments were about at the level of a classic playground fight about whose dad is the greatest. In his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul addresses these divisions, and in summing up the argument, he states this, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18 and on, let no one deceive himself, 
If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in his own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The purpose of these words was to help the Corinthian believers change their thinking with regard to the estimation that they placed upon themselves and upon others. Paul's message is this, that we should neither overestimate what we are, neither should we underestimate what we are in Jesus Christ. That's his message. Don't overestimate what you are and do not underestimate what you are in Jesus. You know, it's interesting that God designed the body wisely. And uh, I don't know if you've ever tried to pat yourself on the back. Have you ever tried to do that? How easy is it to pat yourself on the back? Conversely, it's not very easy. The body is not well equipped to kick yourself too easily either. And God planned it just that way, that we would not think too highly of ourselves, neither underestimate ourselves as we are in Jesus. Paul says, let no one, in verse 18, let no one deceive himself. Pride is really a form of self-deception. We're deluded when we attempt to think that meaning or purpose for life in ourselves or others as if we were wise and if we could provide a solid foundation for living. And this is what the Corinthian church was fighting about. Who was the wisest? What is really deluded is that anything human is, is by nature temporary and flawed. And so it was just an unnecessary struggle. It was an unnecessary fight. It was unnecessary divisions because everything human is by nature temporary and flawed. Pride invites delusion. It looks within itself for something it can comfortably rest upon. It values accomplishments. You know, look at what I did. And uh, because, of, look, look of, because of what I did, look at how valuable I am. It values friends. It values possessions. Look at all the stuff that I have. It values abilities. And in today's day and age, it even values sexuality. And interestingly, it even values spiritual gifts as factors that make a person worthwhile and grant status. It's delusional. But Paul, in his uh, words here in 1 Corinthians 13, bursts that fragile bubble. He points out that human wisdom is inherently flawed. In fact, the wisdom of the world is in fact foolishness. It's an attempt to ascribe ultimate value to that which is fleeting and to that which is temporary, you see. And that's why Paul recommends that instead of clinging to human wisdom, we're to become what? What did he say there in those words? Become as what? Fools. Become as fools. Paul's not simply singing the praise of foolishness here or calling us to sacrifice our intellect. Rather, he is urging us to perceive that the foolishness of God is displayed in Calvary's cross. That what, that's what he's saying. When Paul asks us to become fools, if we are wise in our own estimation, he means we become a fool from this world's perspective by embracing the cross of Jesus. That's what he's referring to. The cross makes as much sense to the secular mind 
as does an inflatable dartboard. You remember those little sayings? Fly screen door on a submarine, those types of things. The cross makes as much sense to the secular mind as some of these ridiculous things. To them, it's a sign of weakness, and to them, it's a sign of rejection. To them, it's a sign of failure. Paul addressed that in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter, eight, chapter 1, verses 18 to 31. To them, the world, they see this cross as a sign of weakness, rejection, and failure. However, real wisdom and power are to be found in following the way of Jesus and the cross. To embrace the cross of Christ is to refuse to find meaning and purpose solely in ourselves and in our accomplishments or in anything that is merely human. And this refusal is not a one-time decision, friends. It is a way of life. It's something we continually live with. Things that could be considered a means to gain are to be considered, as Paul put it, as loss, that we might gain Jesus. Isn't that what we want? Surely. So Paul, his immediate conclusion is that no one should boast in people. We read that in verse 21. Therefore, don't boast in men. See, the various groups in Corinth were boasting in their adopted leaders, such as Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. That's uh, Peter's other name. We also perhaps have our rallying points that end up being reasons for boasting and causing division. The thought that our association with some person or with some ministry makes us more significant is in fact really juvenile. Being associated with a group of people or with a particular ministry doesn't make you better than anybody else. Can I get an amen? Doesn't make you better than anybody else, but it's very common. Christians even find their value in the type of worship that they participate in church that they attend. While the choice that is made might be the right choice and the best choice and a good choice, that choice doesn't make that person any better than the next person. Despite Paul's concern to prevent boasting about Christian leaders elsewhere, he speaks of legitimate boasting. If you're still in 1 Corinthians, go to chapter 1 and verse 31. Chapter 1 and verse 31, notice what he says here. Despite preventing, talking about preventing boasting about, of, about Christian leaders, Paul speaks of legitimate boasting. Notice what he says. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories... Let him glory in who? The Lord. He that glories or he that boasts, that's what the word is. He that boasts, let him boast in God. That's right. Let him boast in God. God's salvation precludes human boasting. You cannot boast about anything human, but Paul says you can boast in who? In the Lord. You can boast in the Lord, you see. Much of Paul's uh, boasting theology, if we could call it that, is lost because translations often use the word rejoice or glory for those places where Paul uses the word boasting positively. You can look at Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3 and verse 11. He rejected any attempt to boast, if we could say, in the flesh, meaning in anything that is just simply human. But he eagerly boasted about a variety of things that the Lord had done. Just uh, flip over with me to Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. We're just going to hop around to a few verses here. Galatians chapter 6 verse 14. <clears throat> there were several things that Paul actually boasted about. Galatians 6 verse 14, he said, But God forbid that I should boast, except what? In the 
cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And so Paul boasted in the cross. According to Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, he boasted in the future glory and God's present working in affliction. Let's just read that there. Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. He says, Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. So Paul boasted in the cross, Paul boasted in the future glory of God and His present working in our daily afflictions, and he also boasted in the Corinthians' willingness to assist monetarily, and you can read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 2. Christians are even referred to as those who boast in Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh, according to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. Similarly, Paul, he rejected a negative idea of commending himself. 2 Corinthians, now just go over there, chapter 3 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul puts down and demolishes the, the need to boast in yourself or in anyone else except Jesus and the way He is working in your life, but he similarly rejects the idea of commending himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse, 3, verse 1. He says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some others, epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? If you go over to chapter 5 and verse 12, he says, For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. If you jump over to chapter 10, and you see this again. Chapter 10, verses 12 and 18. He says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. But they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not what? They're not wise. Verse 12, for we dare not class ourselves, uh, class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves. And over to verse 18, for not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. And so Paul rejects the idea of commending himself, but he had also a positive view of self-commendation in view of what God uh, was accomplishing in and through him. If you're still in 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 4 and verse 2. Notice this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And look at chapter 6, verse 4. Chapter 6, verse 4, he says, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulation, in need, and in distresses. And so he also had a positive view of self-commendation self in view of what God was accomplishing in and through him. So what can we conclude now about pride? What can we say about pride? There is a legitimate drive for us to do acts of value, but neither those acts nor any assets we possess give added value, you see. We need to reject the whole process of trying to find value in ourselves, only God has abiding significance and abiding value, amen? 
Therefore, the only legitimate foundation for boasting is found in God and in His activity in Christ and Christ's activity through the Holy Spirit in you and in me, you see. We overestimate what we are. If we do that, to our, or we do that, we do that to our own peril. In doing so, we turn from that which has real value to simply an illusion, you see. And so that's what we can conclude about pride, that there is a legitimate drive to do acts of value, but neither, nothing that we possess, none of these things that we accomplish give us added value. Now, value comes from God's declaration, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Now, on the other hand, let's talk about humility and false humility. There is a danger in underestimating. Pride is overestimating, humility is under, false humility is underestimating. There's a danger in underestimating what we are in Christ. Self-depreciation is just as much a problem as pride is. Now, on hearing that our righteousness, you remember reading in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, our righteousness is like filthy rags, Christians too often conclude that they are and have no real value. Knowing that pride is sinful, we run into the arms of false humility that belittles ourselves and how God views us and sees us. Tricia, she considered herself worthless and she considered herself incapable of accomplishing anything significant. She didn't feel that she deserved respect. She didn't deserve, she didn't think that she deserved decent treatment. Is her humility legitimate? No, her humility is not legitimate. She married a man who mistreated her and she was trapped in a miserable situation. True, true, she rejected pride, but she devalued herself in the process, underestimating herself. You see, few words are so poorly understood as humility. And few of us know how to practice it. We might well heed the words of Golda Meir, who said, don't be humble, don't be so humble, you are not so great. You see, in our attempts to be humble, we have ended up telling lies about ourselves, saying we cannot do things that we can certainly do very well. Why would a corporate executive, a man who runs his business, feel he is unable to, to pray in public? What, what's with that? Why would a well-educated nurse or someone who goes to school or someone who's working hard, why can't they learn about the Scripture and contribute meaningfully to the other adults in the church and perhaps even adults and people in their community? You see, our attempts at humility have led us to self-effacement to the extent that we are unable to even receive compliments. Our most common reaction to, accomplish, uh, to an accomplishment is simply to deny its validity. You've all said it, you probably said it yourself. Man, you did a wonderful job. Oh, no, no, it, wasn't, no, it wasn't that good, you know. We have a hard time. Rather than just saying, thank you very much, I appreciate that. But true, but true humility, I'm reading from Christ's Object Lessons, page 363. True humility is widely different. To be clothed with humility does not mean that we are to be dwarfs in intellect, deficient in aspiration, and cowardly in our lives, shunning burdens lest we fail to carry them successfully. She goes on to say that real humility fulfills God's purposes by depending upon His strength. That's true humility. 
True humility doesn't mean you can be a dwarf in intellect, deficient in aspiration, coward in your pursuits, shunning burdens lest you are afraid that you can't carry them out successfully. Real humility is uh, following and fulfilling God's purposes for your life by trusting in His strength to accomplish those things. That's true humility. Can I get another amen out there? Truly. The biblical concept of humility is not self-effacement, and it is not the least conducive to what some term a worm theology, although the Bible does sometimes talk about or give that impression in Psalms 22.6, the psalmist said, I am just a worm, and I am not a man. (laughs) But humanity is viewed in a negative light when we are seen independent of God. Or when someone witnesses God's glory and the magnificence of God, we tremble in our own humanity. Under those circumstances, the words of Isaiah 40, verses 6 and 7 are correct. The voice said, cry out. And and he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The The grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows it upon it. Surely the people are grass. In other words, what the Bible writer is saying simply, he's not talking about the value of a person, he's talking about the fact that our life is temporary and our life is fleeting. And so we need to place our priorities and values where they ought to be in something lasting and something naturally eternal. eternal. We are also created in the image of God. And God gives us inestimable value through His work of creation and His work of redemption. In Psalms 8, verses 4 and 5, David recognizes this aspect of our worth. He wrote, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and with honor. We are significant, we are insignificant rather, when viewed apart from God. But when we are viewed in relation to God, we possess value twice through His creative acts and His redemptive acts, you see. That's why false humility is just as wrong as pride. Both view our existence from a merely human point of view. Now, rather than showing false humility, Paul makes several exalted claims about Christians throughout his letters. It's interesting. If we confine our attention to only the first chapters of 1 Corinthians, we'll read these things. We'll read that we find that we have received the Spirit, which is from God. We have the mind of Christ. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been washed, we've been sanctified, we've been justified in the name of the Lord and by the Spirit of God. Now, there's no self-effacement present here whatsoever. On the contrary, these words represent the value that's being given to believers by God's grace. That's what they represent. And the most surprising statement is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll read verses 21 to 23. Again, a part of our scripture reading. Notice, it's just, just remarkable. Hard to get your mind around these sentiments. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verses 21 to 23. This is the most surprising statement that we can find from Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 21, Therefore let no one boast in men, for all are what? Yours. All are yours. 
All are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours. All are yours. Could Paul have really meant what he said? All things are yours? His initial concern, of course, was to explain to the Corinthians that they do not belong to their ministers, rather their ministers belong to them. That's what he is first addressing, you see. But the passage moves far beyond just simply the ministers of the church. He goes on to say that not only Apollos and Paul and Cephas belong to them, but also the world, also life, also death, also the present and the future, all belong to those who find themselves in Christ Jesus, you see. That's quite a gift, wouldn't you say? That's a huge gift. One author states this, these realities, talking about these verses, he said, these realities are, are, are to no, uh, sorry, these realities are no longer to threaten us or to control us. That's what, I like the way he put that, that's what Paul, in essence, is saying. These things don't need to control us and they don't need to threaten us. Rather, they are to be owned and appropriated for life in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. These realities are no longer to threaten us or control us, rather they are to be owned and appropriated for life in Christ. Even the world, even death are the Christians and are to be used for God, That's which we instinctively cling to, such as life and the present, and that which we instinctively dread and don't look forward to such as death, are no longer realities that dominate us or determine who we are. There is a larger reality to the life of a Christian, a follower of Jesus. All things are ours in Christ Jesus. And here is the basis for true freedom and the foundation for true Christian living, you see. I've known people, and you've probably known them as well, who in the face of terrible disease live their lives in such a way that does not draw sympathy to themselves, but instead elevates a person's thoughts to the goodness and the mercy of God. And you step back and you say, how on earth is that possible? How are they living above and beyond the tragedy and the suffering and the pain that they are going through? I've met people who have, been suff who have suffered under terrible, terrible injustice, but their lives reflect poise and balance and grace as they reflect the attributes of Christ in their daily living. All things are theirs. All things are theirs. Now, Paul, he didn't fear death. Neither was the world for him something to possess or fear. Rather, Paul felt all things were his, including death and the world, to be used in service for Christ. For Christians, in a real sense, the world <laughs> is our oyster. In a real sense, self-effacement has no illegitimate place in the Christian's life. Now, obviously, Paul's words can be open to abuse. They could easily be taken out of context and made the basis for some type of triumphalism, of which Christians have too often been guilty. In triumphalism, the focus is placed so heavily on victory that the reality of sin, its results, and even failure in our lives are often ignored. God has promised to make me wealthy. He's promised to make me healthy. He's promised to make me happy. And sadly, these attributes invariably lead to pride 
and even the denigration of others. Now, what's surprising about these verses, however, is that Paul made these all-yours statements to the church in Corinth, to the very church that was guilty of triumphalism. That's very interesting. So, this teaches us that we cannot correct the error of triumphalism by diminishing the victory of Christ or the privileges that He's made available to you and me by grace through faith. All things are ours in Jesus Christ. But triumphalism does need correcting, and Paul does just that. First, while it appears that Paul gives the Corinthian believers a basis for their boasting, really, he has pulled the carpet out from underneath their feet when he told them, all things are yours, look what it says, all things are yours, verse 23, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's how he pulled the rug from underneath their feet. He told them, all things are yours, but added, you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Only as we are Christ's are all things ours, in other words. Only possession of all things is determined by Christ and our relation to Him. And certainly that prevents any abuse resulting from pride, egotism, and any ideas of privilege. Secondly, secondly, to be Christ, to be His, is to be shaped by both His death and His resurrection. Triumphalism forgets what the Corinthians had forgotten that forgotten the cross of Jesus. The content of Paul's gospel centered on both the resurrection and the cross of Christ. And while resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus dominates the end of his letter, the first, the, the first Corinthian letter, the cross dominates the beginning of his letter. The statement, all things are yours, is couched in the theology of Calvary's cross, you see. The willingness to give ourselves to Christ excludes selfishness. It excludes individualism. All things are ours to be used for Christ in service to Him, to him and toward others. That's what he's referring to. That's what he's talking about. The attempt to avoid abuse of Paul's words should not diminish our appreciation of the breadth and the depth of what we receive in Jesus Christ. Similar expressions of value occur throughout Paul's letter and throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, There are several I'll just share with you here. Number one, Christians are fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Have you ever stopped to consider that everything, God has given everything to Christ, and if we are in Christ, we are joint heirs with Jesus? In other words, everything that Jesus possesses, you possess. Have you stopped to think about that reality? How much does God possess? Everything. And when we express faith in Christ, give Him our hearts, surrender our wills to Him, we become joint heirs with Christ. The universe, the myriad galaxies, the stars, the planets, all things then become ours. Have you considered that? Christians are fellow heirs. The Bible also talks about the fact that we become members of God's family. We were orphaned, but God, through Jesus, adopted us into His family. Do you know what it's like to be a part of the family of God? Do you know the privileges that are entailed in becoming a, a, a member of Adam's, the second Adam's family? Because in the first Adam, we all, we all suffer, we all die, and that's it, and we sin. And because we've sinned, we are deserving of death. But when we express faith in Jesus and we're adopted into God's family... We may suffer for a time, and we may die a natural death or a painful death, 
but we will be raised to everlasting life. We'll be raised to eternal glory. Becoming a, a member of the family of God means that no longer does sin have dominion over us because where sin abounds, grace that much more does abound. When we become a member of the family of God, the second Adam's family, sin doesn't have a hold on us anymore. We are free in Jesus, free to obey, free to live for Jesus. That's what it means to become a member of the family of God. The Bible also says that we are glorified with Christ. The Bible suggests that we are already living in heavenly places. It's like we're already there. God views us as such. We are given the glory that God gave to Christ. And five, we are given a great and tremendous gift in the gift of the Holy Spirit. A wonderful gift to guide us, to direct us, to enlighten our minds as we study God's Word, to direct our footsteps, to teach us, to train us, to educate our consciences in the will and way of God. The Holy Spirit has been given to convict us of sin, to approve us, tell us judgment has come and to surrender all to Jesus. We've been given tremendous gifts. The point is that we have received value and we have received standing by God's grace in Christ Jesus. There is no limit. I'll say this twice. There is no limit to the grace that has been given to us. I'll say it again. There is no limit to the grace that has been given to you and has been given to me. The only limit that we place on the grace is our willingness to embrace it or not embrace it. That's the limit. But there's no limit to the grace that God has given us. But as always with grace, there's always a call to responsibility. Life has not only been given to us, but meaning and purpose have been given to us as well in the call to serve the one who we now declare to be Lord of all things. True humility, therefore, is that which recognizes that our meaning purpose, talents, abilities, and even our life are not our own, but they are gifts that we receive from a very gracious God. In the Christian life, there is simply no room for either pride or self-effacement. The choice left to us is not a tightrope to walk between the two, but is simply an entirely new kind of life living for Jesus. Pride and false humility share a common perspective, both focus on self. Both focus on self. But grace moves us to a new horizon and with a new, gives us a new, entirely new perspective. Now we see ourselves in our relationship to Jesus Christ. The wealth that this relationship brings, however, is not a basis for pride. It is the wealth, as someone put it, it is the wealth of a steward, not of an owner. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, Paul asks the pointed question, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting as if it was yours? We can't ignore who we are or what we have. And on top of that, we haven't been asked to. We are asked, however, to find the basis of life in God rather than ourselves and to know that whatever we are or have is a gift that comes from a gracious God. Having a proper understanding of himself in Christ did not stop Paul from having a very robust view of the importance of his ministry. He took a back seat to nobody. On the other hand, Paul referred to himself as, least, as the least of the saints. 
and as the least of the apostles because he persecuted the church. But even his persecution of the church did not lead to self-depreciation, for he went on to make one of the most liberating statements ever made. And it's over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we close on this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. Paul said, by the grace of God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. You see, our defects and our failures are not causes for self-depreciation, and our strengths and our accomplishments are not the basis for pride. All we are, we are by the grace of God. This is the basis of freedom in Christ and our service for Christ. Grace should never be used as an excuse to do nothing, not to be, it's an excuse to actually do the exact opposite. We are responsible to see that grace has an effect in our lives that is revealed and seen in serving others for Jesus. This individual that I read about never, never liked to speak publicly at all. He was a quiet and almost bashful man, more likely choosing to be in the corner than be behind a podium. He told his class once that he would have been happy to have been an, elev an elevator operator on the campus, college campus that he taught at. But God's call on his life did not allow him to be self-effacing. By grace and with hard work, this teacher developed knowledge, he developed insight, and an ability to communicate in a way that was spellbinding. That ability didn't make him better than other people. He didn't act as if he thought he was. For his students, he became a prime example of humility, competent and gifted because he trusted God, worked hard, and he let none of these accomplishments go to his head. It's important to learn that we should not overestimate our own importance as if we were the center of the universe and all things revolved around us. By ourselves, we are nothing and a soon-to-be wilted flower. On the other hand, we should not underestimate ourselves, for Paul said we have been given all things because of our relationship to Jesus Christ. To borrow Paul's words, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Blaise Pascal expressed it all this way in Penzies, page 526 and 527. The knowledge of God without that of man's misery causes pride. The knowledge of man's misery without that of God causes despair. The knowledge of Jesus Christ constitutes the middle course because in him we both find both God and our misery. Jesus Christ is a God whom we approach without pride and before whom we humble ourselves without despair. Won't you give up trying to be superior and be faithful instead? Won't you reject messages of inferiority, even eternal ones, because grace says that it doesn't matter? Won't you with Paul, the one who persecuted the early church, the one who did horrible things, the one who himself in doing those things thought he was good, thought he was righteous, thought he was great, better than others. And yet on his way to a little town, he ran into Jesus. And Jesus knocked him off his horse, couldn't see a thing. And those words out of that darkness spoke to him, Paul, why, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And Saul, who we know as Paul, had a change of heart, converted, gave his life to Jesus Christ, was a changed man. No longer did he see himself as better than anyone others. No longer, no longer did he do those things that weren't pleasing in God's eyes when he came to understand the truth of the matter from God's word. He no longer was the same man, but he was transformed by grace. Won't you say with Paul, that man who was changed, a changed man because he encountered Jesus, won't you say with him, by God's grace or the grace of God, I am what I am. May God help you. May God help me to be all that he desires us to be so we can be effective ministers for him, effective servants for his cause, each one reaching one for Jesus. All that I am, I am by the grace of God. All that you are, you are by the grace of God. With Paul, we declare, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.